So please turn in your Bibles to John 19 and Numbers 21 and Matthew 16. So John 19, Matthew 16, and Numbers 21. And I just wanted to, as we're starting today, say thank you. Um, I wanted to say thank you. Last week you all signed a card for my wife and I and uh, took a collection for pastor appreciation. And uh, we were just overwhelmed beyond measure by the heart of this church. Thank you. Um, so we just wanted to say thank you for that. I also am overwhelmed as I look. If you take a look towards the back, on the back row there, uh, we put out a call within the last couple of days for uh, food that we're collecting for Dominica. Uh, they suffered uh, devastation with the uh, recent hurricane. And, um, and I'm just taking a look at the heart of this church by, uh, by looking at that. And I'm just, wow, wow, wow. So praise God. Praise God. Um, few announcements. Um, next Sunday, if you're not busy after church, uh, we are trying to make arrangements to go over to the new property. Um, so you're welcome to join us for a little field trip, and uh, we'll give you the address next week. Uh, so if you are available and you would like to join us for that next Sunday, and we will confirm that. We're just tightening that up, making sure that we can get in there and everything. But we would love to, as God is putting the vision for this on our hearts, that would be something that we would love if you would uh, just be part of. So we'll all go out to lunch afterwards also. You know, maybe converge on the Boynton Food Court or something like that. So that's going to be next Sunday after church. Monday night we have community group. Uh, and that's at the Discipleship House. That's at 7 o'clock. We've been going through the life of King David, and it has been a blessing to uh, partake in that study. Wednesday, we're having discipleship night here, right in the uh, teacher's lounge. We are outgrowing the teacher's lounge. So all of this stuff is happening uh, at, at a great time. And um, Thursday, at Cameron Villas, we're having an addiction meeting. Uh, Thursday night, 7 o'clock, and we've just been watching the Holy Spirit move mightily out there. Uh, we do baptisms out there, so if somebody's interested in getting baptized, we've been doing baptisms out there, and, um, and that's just been a wonderful time together. That is all in the way of announcements. I believe if you would uh, please uh, set your phasers on stun, that means uh, put your cell phones off, and um, the snack table again will be open again after church, and by the way, all that stuff on the back is open game, uh, so please take it. Uh, if you don't take that bread to bless someone, if you don't take those desserts, uh, they, they go to waste, quite honestly. So please take it, and if you don't want it, bless someone else. But there's a lot back there. So, uh, and the whole reason that it is back there is to bless. It is back there to bless. So there you go. John 19. We're going to start this week at verse 17. John 19, verse 17. And he, he being Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews. But Pilate said, He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Father in heaven, we just thank you again. We are here. You are holy. And in our worship, you've made it clear that your presence is in this place. In your word, we have the promise that says we're two or more gathered. So we know you're here. And we desire to hear not from a man, but from you. So whether it be the teacher or the congregation, help us to get out of the way so you can say whatever it is you need to say to speak into each heart, to teach us, to touch us, and to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. People have done some crazy things in the name of love. In the name of love, people have done some really, really crazy things. I would ask, what have you done in the name of love because of love? When I thought of this title, I thought of the song by you, you two, in the name of love. You've heard that, right? And I was thinking of the things that we do because we love people. And sometimes those things are simple and thoughtful. It's a card. It's a little note that you scribble. It's a box of chocolates. Sometimes it's simple and thoughtful. Sometimes it's creative and entertaining. Creative and entertaining. Most of you know the story that when I was courting my wife that I dressed up like Forrest Gump. And I ran by her house with a box of chocolates and a flower and a can of peas and carrots. Creative and entertaining, I hope it was. We're married, so. <laughs> so sometimes it's simple and thoughtful. Sometimes it's creative and entertaining. And at those examples, you usually look at and you go, ah. At least the ladies go, ah, that's so cute. But then sometimes it's public and surprising what we do in the name of love. You can ask the Astros, Carlos Correa, after the World Series, getting interviewed, calling his gal over and OBTW, getting down on his knees and asking her to marry him. That's public and surprising. She wasn't expecting it. So sometimes it's simple and thoughtful in the name of love. Sometimes it is creative and entertaining. Sometimes it's public and surprising. And sometimes it's extreme and disturbing. Sometimes it's extreme and disturbing what we do in the name of love. Imagine you're meeting your boyfriend at a diner, because this is a true account. And instead of finding your love staring adoringly at you over candlelight, there's a first-rate trauma scene unfolding in the parking lot. Ambulances, wrecked cars, and your boyfriend lifeless and bloody on the ground. The paramedic gives you the worst news of all time. The love of your life is gone. And then he comes skipping around the corner with a balloon in his hand. 
a balloon in his hand. This whole scene was a marriage proposal when Alexev Baikov proposed to his girlfriend in the completely true scenario above. He knew it had to be convincing, so he hired a movie director, stuntmen, makeup artists, and even a scriptwriter to stage the whole thing. He said, I wanted her to realize how empty her life would be without me and how life would have no meaning without me. Now, we just went from going ah to ew. <laughs> yeah, we just went from ah to ew in a matter of moments. There's another couple that spent $200,000 worth of surgery to look like each other. These are true accounts. There's another, a 20-year-old, Jordan Cardella, who begged his buddy to shoot him with a gun so his ex-girlfriend would feel sorry for him. That goes to the ew file, okay? So again, it can be simple and thoughtful, creative and entertaining, public and surprising, and extreme and disturbing. But we move from awe to ew, now to woe. Woe. Because arguably within the next three weeks, we study the most important event in human history. In the name of love, Jesus came to save his people. The Bible says God is love. And this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So how far would the father go? He would sacrifice his child. How far would the son go all the way to a cross? How far would the Holy Spirit go? How far did he go for you? In the name of love. See, the cross is the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. It is also the greatest act of wrath that the world has ever seen. And it's easy to say that the most significant in human history shows us how much God loves us. And considering the magnitude over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at three things today in part one of In the Name of Love. We're going to take a look at three things Jesus does in the name of love and how we are called to respond to it. Are you ready? So let's start again. It's John 19, verse 17. And it reads like this. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Stop right there. We're going to break this down today. It says, and he bearing his cross. We saw what happened within the last few weeks. We discussed it, and we're kind of like taking the information given by the other gospel writers so we can get the big picture where we were told the Pilate has washed his hands. The children of Israel and their leaders have said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And now Jesus is bearing his cross. Look at the pronoun. It says, and he bearing his cross. He was bearing his cross. You see, a condemned criminal, after their torture, would carry their cross, and this is what it looked like. It says, victims crucified on a traditionally shaped cross were forced to carry 
only the crossbeam from the place of the official judgment to their place of execution. Thus, not the entire traditional cross. Executions were usually performed every year in the same locations which were accessible to the public. The upright portion of the crosses always remained in their holes in the ground at these locations. Most victims would not have been physically capable of carrying an entire cross due to their heavy weight and the extent of their beating. It says, Jesus carried the cross an estimated total distance of 650 yards. That's six and a half football fields. The crossbar weighed between 80 to 110 pounds. From the beating, Jesus walked on a path known as the Via Dolorosa, or the way of suffering to be crucified at Golgotha. The total distance estimated 650 yards, as we said, a narrow street of stone. It was probably surrounded by markets in Jesus' time. He was led through the crowded streets carrying the crossbar. So he bore his cross. And what that represents when we talk about Jesus bearing the cross Well, that represents the sin, yours and mine, that he carried. That represents our sin, and it was his cross. So on the same night that he was betrayed and denied and abandoned, smacked and scourged and spat upon, his beard ripped, now hearing the jeers and the ridicule, let me ask you something. If you're the one carrying the cross, when do you put it down and take a look at them and say, I'm done with this. I'm done with these people. They're just not worth it. When do you call in the heavenly reinforcements and say, this whole deal is over? Well, he doesn't. He carries the cross. See, in the name of love, he carries the cross. And it's his cross to carry the weight of our sins. And it's a cross that no man could bear. You understand that it's a cross that no man could carry. To make our relationship right with a holy, perfect God, there is nothing a sinful man could do, no effort that we could make. And so what he did was he took a look at us and he said, listen, he he took a look at this sinner and he, he said, you know what, John, I know him. This guy's selfish. He's ambitious. He's terrible. He's abusive, he's angry, he's nasty, he's miserable, he's ungrateful. And he's carrying my cross. He's carrying the cross, bearing that cross, because that cross would crush me. I mean, have you ever felt like you were being crushed by life? Have you felt that the pressures of life bearing down upon you in a way that you just could not take, that the temptations and the frustrations and the struggles of life were just weighing down on you and there was nothing that you could do and it felt like you were, you were getting crushed by it? Jesus says, I know. That's why I'm carrying it. I'm carrying what you couldn't. I'm doing what you couldn't. On your own, you're not going to be able to stand before God unless somebody picks up that cross. So in the name of love, this is the beginning of our first point. In the name of love, he carried a cross. A lot of the times we say, no, you know what? I got this. I can carry it. I can carry it. But he said, no, no. In the name of love, he carried the cross. 
But he also tells us to do something very interesting. I want you to just turn for a moment from John. Just flip over to one verse in Matthew just for a moment. It's chapter 16. It's verse 24. And this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Then Jesus said to his disciples, chapter 16, verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, listen, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How exciting does that sound? All right, hey, you want to follow me? You want this whole Christianity thing? Okay, here's what you're going to all, all you have to do is this. Deny yourself, deny myself. I'd stop there. Deny myself? Is that what Christianity is about? Denying myself? Why would I want to do that? Most religions say, well, indulge yourself at least a little bit. Everything in moderation. But no, this says deny yourself. So most of us will stop dead right there. And we'd say, okay, that's all, folks. I'm done. I'm not going there. Deny yourself? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. So the first point in its entirety looks like this. In the name of love, he carries a cross and bids me to take up mine. What's my cross? How does this work? Deny yourself, take up your cross. What does this whole thing look like? This is what it looks like. You're going through a battle. It's temptation. It's addiction. It is misery. It's frustration. It's anxiety. And you don't know how to deal with it. One day, somebody says, hey, you know what? Why don't, why don't you come to church with me? No, 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 I'm not going to church. I know those Christians. I, I, I know what they do. I'm going to walk in there, and they're going to be like raising their hands, and they're going to be clapping, and it's just a little bit too crazy for me. See, I was brought up in the Baptist church. I can say this, okay, because I was brought up with the organ and the, the preaching, and, you know, when, when I first met my wife, that's all I knew was the Baptist church. I walked into InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the college, and they're singing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and they're all, I was like, what is this? These people are crazy. They're, they're, what is wrong with them? And then I saw my wife doing it. I was like, well, I better start doing it, <laughs> otherwise she's going to know. So I start doing it, but then all of a sudden something happened when I was singing and I was worshiping. Something happened, and now I was doing it, and I didn't care what anybody was thinking. I was clapping. I was raising my hands. I was like, wow, this is awesome. This is incredible. But something happened. See, the moment that I started denying myself, the moment we deny ourselves, you, you came into church, and even if somebody dragged you here, even if somebody pulled you here, you heard something, and you said, that there's a God that loves me? And you said, I'm sick of trying to do life on my terms. I'm, trying, I'm sick of trying to do this by myself, and I'm done. I'm just done. And you had this experience, and maybe they did an altar call like we do at our church, and you heard the music playing, and you were like, I want to make a change in my life, and I have to do it now. And you came up, and you prayed, and you still struggled. But something happened in your head, in your heart. And it was at that moment, what happened was you started denying yourself. You started realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. He did this for me. He knew my past. He knew where I'd been. He knew what I'd done. He knew who I hurt, and he still did that for me. This God loves me. 
I want to live for him. He carried my cross because I couldn't carry it. When you come to the point where you're sitting there saying, you know what? I'm done. I I want to do this your way. Jesus said, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you want to do it my way. Listen. Because this is what he calls us to do. It's almost like he's sitting on a park bench with us when we're struggling. And listen to what he says in Matthew 11. I just want to read this to you. You don't have to turn there. Come to me, John. You look tired and you're laboring a lot. And I want to give you rest. I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your soul, John. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what you find is this, is that you who've been pushing through life, you who have been struggling, struggling, struggling and, and pushing and getting exhausted and feeling like you're running in place and you're, you're in this rat race and it's full of rats and you're getting, you know, ah! And now God says, listen, no. Deny yourself. And now you begin to realize how much he loves you. He's changing your heart. And now you're sitting in the church one day. And you hear that they're doing a food drive for Dominica. And you say, hey, you know what? I could get into that. I want to pitch in there. You hear that there's, so there's an opening to work with our youth. You hear that there we're working and ministering to those in recovery. You hear about something that touches your heart. And now you say, oh, you know what? I have to do something about that. Not doing something about that is not an option. And that's how it works. That's when God begins to ignite your heart and you say, I have to do something. And that's what it means because you're denying yourself and you're emptying self and that leaves room for the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you know what? I've got a a mission in life for you. How many of you have found your mission in life? Have you found it? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what it looks like. He carried the cross that we couldn't because that cross would have crushed us. It would have crushed us. It's not a religious obligation, you understand. It's a heart response. It's a heart response that encourages you, that inspires you, and that pulls you forward when sometimes you feel like quitting and and sometimes you feel like you know what I, I don't know if I can do this no 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 the mission means too much and then that's when you say God I can't carry the cross I can't carry this cross and he says I know I've given you a mission that you're only going to be able, listen, I'm going to give you a mission that you're only going to be able to accomplish if I give you the strength to do it that's what it looks like. How do you know if you found your cross? How do you know if you're bearing your bur- the burden that he meant for you? Here's how you know. You know because it's an aligned with his priorities. I've got a burden to do this. Well, is this a burden that Jesus would have had? You want to help special needs? Yeah, I think that's a cross that he would uh, give us to carry. You want to lead worship in his church? I think that that's a, that's a cross that, that, he, that he would put on you to carry. And that's when your life is never the same. When you deny yourself and you take up the cross that he has. And then you begin to say, well, this actually, you know, it feels like a relief. How many of you have been through the airport and, you know, you're carrying the luggage in back of you. You've got the strap around you. You've got like five bags and you're just trudging through the airport. And then you finally get to the point where you get to your destination and you just let it all go. Wow. Wow. 
That's life, man. That is life before God, before you find his purpose, before you deny yourself and you say, listen, I've got something so much better. You've been carrying all this luggage and I had something that was not only going to be lighter, but this was going to be something you were going to love. You're going to love the plan I have for you. See, in the name of love, he carries a cross and bids us to take up ours. But there's a little confusion with this sometimes. You find it in Galatians in chapter 6 because he says, carry one another's burdens. Wait a second. How do I do that? How do I carry somebody else's burdens without getting crushed? Believe me, as a pastor, this is something I've battled with. How do I carry somebody? You know, I'm, I'm getting phone calls, and I'm like, well, I would take so much personally. There's so much of it that I would take personally, and it would weigh me down, and God would say, you're taking up a cross that you were never meant to bear. How do you help someone bear their burdens? And I thought back to my nursing experience, and this is when I understood it. Back to nursing school. It was probably around 2003, 2004 when I was doing my turn in the maternity ward. In the maternity ward for a guy, there's just not a lot you can do during your training rotations. So I'm sitting there, and a lot of the ladies would politely say, listen, if he's a guy, I'd prefer him not be in here. To which I was only like, okay, you got it. I'm gone. I would, I would be only too happy to leave the room. But some of the ladies would let me stay there. Now, I didn't know what to do. I was writing sermons during nursing school, so I really didn't know what to do in these situations. And it wasn't really something I could relate to when the ladies were going through labor and doing all of that. And so my nursing instructor, the one lady, is she's in labor, and the nursing instructor's looking at me like this, like, okay, go ahead, do something. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what? what? What can I possibly do? Give, give encouragement. I'm like, okay, I can do this. And I thought about, like, you know, being in the gym. I thought about being in the gym. Like, you got this. Yes, you can do it. And I'm thinking, okay, now I'm really nursing now. Nurse John is to the rescue. It's like she was, I could just see that she was looking at me like cross-eyed, but I was getting into it. I was like, you got this. Come on. Come on. And I, I, I almost gave her a high five. They did not let me back into the maternity ward. That was the end of that. <laughs> I'll never forget the look on the nursing instructor's face. <laughs> I also worked as a hospice nurse. You see, when I was looking at this and thinking about what does it mean to bear someone else's burdens, I thought of this. It's a matter of being there in the birthing process and the dying process and everything in between. See, during the dying process, I would sit by someone's bedside and a lot of the time, all I could do was hold their hand and just be a loving presence. The hospice chaplains would, they would document it like this in their notes, uh, provided ministry of presence. See, when it comes to bearing someone's burdens, folks, when you begin to take that person's identity onto yourself and that person's weight is crushing you, that's when you know you've gone too far. When you begin to feel that person's weight of what they're going through crushing you, that's when you've gone too far. You weren't meant to do that. 
we can pray for them. Sometimes we can pray with them. Sometimes God makes a provision for you to help them. But you can't carry that for them. All you can do is point to the one that said, listen, you're getting crushed by what you're going through. Let me show you Matthew 11. I have a Savior. And he told me to exchange it. And since that day, I've never been the same. And you don't have to let this burden crush you. Why? Because he carried a cross. He carried a cross. Let's go back to John 19. We'll read verses 17 and 18 again just for context's sake. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place, the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. An interesting thing about the place that he carries the cross is that in, in the Latin, it's Calvary and it's the, the, the place of the skull. So when you think of Calvary Chapel, well, we could very well be called Skull Chapel because that's what it means. Now, wouldn't that be interesting for your T-shirts, right? You've got your Calvary T-shirts, okay, to have a little skull and a cross on it and say, what church do you go to? What church do you go to? I go to the sculpture. I go to Calvary, and Calvary means skull. See? No, you look like a pirate, man. All right? So <laughs> Calvary means <laughs> skull. <laughs> so, so it says here, now, that he carried the cross where they crucified him, and two others were with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. One on either side and Jesus in the center. Make no mistake, Roman crucifixion was particularly brutal. It was brutal. I have a note here that says that the Persians had invented it from 300 to 400 B.C., but it was perfected by the Romans in the first century B.C. It's arguably the most painful death ever invented by man, and it is where we get the term, listen to this, you've heard this word before, excruciating. We get that from the word crucifixion, crucified. All right, that's where you get the word excruciating. It was reserved primarily for the most vicious of criminals. The most common device used for crucifixion was a wooden cross, which consisted of an upright pole permanently fixed in the ground with a removable crossbar. Victims of crucifixion were typically stripped naked and their clothing divided by the Roman guards. In Jesus' case, this was done in fulfillment of the prophecy from Psalm 22 that said that they would divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Listen to the description of crucifixion. The victim was placed on his back, arms stretched and nailed to the crossbar the nails, which were generally about seven to nine inches long, were placed between the bones of the forearms, the radius and the ulna, and the small bones of the hand, the carpal bones. The placement of the nail at this point had several effects. First, it ensured that the victim would indeed hang there until they were dead. Secondly, a nail placed at this point would sever the largest nerve in the hand called the median nerve. The severing of this nerve is a medical catastrophe. In addition... Several burning pain to severe burning pain, the destruction of this nerve caused permanent paralysis of the hand, but no bones would be broken in the process. The position of the feet also was critical. They were flexed, the knees were flexed at about 45 degrees, 
and the feet were flexed, bent downward an additional 45 degrees until they were parallel with the vertical pole. An iron nail of about seven to nine inches long was driven through the feet between the second and third metatarsal bones. In this position, the nail would sever the dorsal pedal artery. The whole point being this, is that with the knees flexed at about 45 degrees, the victim would have to bear the weight and the muscles of the thigh. However, this was almost an impossible task. Try to stand with your knees flexed at 45 degrees for five minutes. As the strength of the legs gives out, the weight of the body must now be borne by the arms and the shoulders. The rest is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the result is that within a few minutes of being placed on the cross, the shoulders would become dislocated. With the arms dislocated, body weight is transferred to the chest, causing the rib cage to be elevated in a state of perpetual inhalation. Consequently, in order to exhale, the victim must push down on his feet to allow the rib muscles to relax. The problem is that the victim cannot push very long because the legs are extremely fatigued. The result of the process is a series of catastrophic physiological effects because the victim cannot maintain adequate ventilation to the lungs. The blood oxygen level begins to diminish. The blood carbon dioxide levels begin to rise. And at the end, the heart is compromised. It says the lungs collapse, fill up with fluid, which further decreases oxygen delivery to the tissues. The blood loss and hyperventilation combines to cause severe dehydration. Over the period of several hours, the combination of collapsing lungs, a failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get adequate oxygen supplies to the tissues causes the eventual death of the victim. The victim, in effect, cannot breathe properly and slowly, suffocates to death. In cases of severe cardiac stress, such as crucifixion, a victim's heart can even burst. This process is called cardiac rupture. Therefore, it could be said that Jesus died of a broken heart. You see, in the name of love, he carried a cross. But you have to understand that there was a schedule to be fulfilled that day that he went to that cross to go through that crucifixion. And he was not the original man scheduled to be on that cross. The Bible tells us that there is a man called Barabbas. Barabbas was scheduled to be on that middle cross that day. Barabbas was scheduled to be on the middle cross. And Pilate trying to absolve himself of putting what he deemed to be an innocent man to prison, here's what happened. Pilate asked the crowd to choose. He asked the crowd to choose who was going to hang on that cross. Now the Bible, when it comes to Barabbas, tells us this. These are words that are used to describe him in Scripture. It says he was a murderer. It said he was a robber. It says he was a rebel. It says he was a notorious criminal. These are the words that are used to describe Barabbas. A rebel. But the Bible says that we're all rebels. Murderer. But the Bible says that if we've been guilty of hating without a reason, that we're guilty of that. A thief. Have you ever stolen something? Barabbas is put on that cross. And here's why that is significant. Because a sinner was supposed to be on that cross. And here's why it's more significant. 
Because Barabbas represents the fact that Jesus took our place on that cross. He took your place and he took my place when he went to that cross. He chose you. Do you understand that? Do you take that personally? The fact that Jesus chose you in that moment. He could have been delivered any time, but he instead, no, he chose you. And he took your place on that cross, and he took my place on that cross. And that brings us to our second point. In the name of love, he was crucified, and I have a choice. That choice is further represented not only by the fact that Barabbas isn't there and Jesus is for us, but it's also represented by the fact that our passage today tells us that he was crucified between two criminals. They're on either side of him. And their choice represents our choice, the choice that we're always making when we come to the foot of the cross. Because as he's hanging on the cross, here's what happens. You've got one guy on one side saying, well, why don't you take yourself off the cross? And he's yelling at Jesus, and the other guy says, wait, wait, wait a second. This guy did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. And the choice that they make between death and life is the same choice that we have whenever we come to the cross. He went to the cross so that we could have a choice. He went to the cross so that we could have a choice between death and life. And this choice has been in Scripture. No, don't worry about it. This choice has been in Scripture since the very beginning. From the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, there was a choice in the beginning. But there's also a choice that gives us a great picture of this. It's back in the book of Numbers. So I'm going to ask you to turn there for a moment. It's Numbers 21. Starting at verse 1, Numbers 21. The children of Israel have been wandering around. It says here, the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who was dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way as was custom with the children of Israel. Their soul became very discouraged, very discouraged along the way. And they began to speak against God, and they began to speak against Moses, saying this, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathe this worthless bread. Stop right there. Stop right there. Had they been fed by God? Yes. Had they been given water by God? Yes. Had they provision from God? As a matter of fact, when God made that provision, it was called manna. This is the bread of heaven. And they were so thankful for it when they got it. And maybe you've been this person right here where it's like you were thankful for the provision when you got it, but then all of a sudden the provision began to get old and you began to take the provision for granted and then you actually disdained the provision. And that's where the children of Israel were at. Can you imagine? They're angry. They're grumbling. 
They don't like the food. I was thinking about this. Moses had millions of people following him. We went on a five and a half hour car ride with my kids recently. All we heard was this. Dad, thank you. Are we almost there yet? How many of you have ever heard that? How many of you have ever said that? Are we almost there yet? Dad, are we almost there yet? And now at that point, I begin to play with them and antagonize them. Oh, yes, we've only got another seven hours left. All right? And so here they are. Can you imagine now having three million people saying, I don't like the fact that... Can you imagine having three million people complaining about you? So if you've got people complaining about you today, tomorrow at work or, or wherever you're at tomorrow, be thankful. You don't have three million people complaining about you. All right? And so they've got people complaining about them. And so here's what God does. Very diplomatic what the Lord does here. It says, <laughs> it says so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And that word for serpent is the same word for serpent that you see in Genesis 3. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Problem solved. So tomorrow is take your serpent to work day. And as they're complaining about you, just take your serpent to work day. Now, listen. Doesn't it seem ironic to you that the penalty for rejecting God's provision, the penalty was a serpent? Because the serpent was the reason that they rejected God's initial provision in the first place, wasn't it? And how many times have you made a decision where you've rejected God's provision and it came back like a serpent to kind of bite you? Have you ever had that happen? All right, because if you have, then you can relate to what we're seeing in our passage today. Nevertheless, many of the people of Israel died. Verse 7 says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that, he's take, that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Listen, despite the fact that they were complaining against Moses and God, they went to Moses. They said, hey, okay, we're sorry. Please give us relief. What does Moses do? Moses could have very easily said, you know what? You're on your own. That's exactly right. He could have said, you're on your own. I'm done with you. But that's not what he does. Instead, it says here, it says, Moses prayed for the people. Are you praying for the people that are backbiting? Are you praying for the people that you're struggling with? Are you praying with them? Or are you praying for them? Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was as if a serpent had, if a serpent had bitten someone. When he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Stop right there. Have you ever seen on the physician symbol the uh, snake wrapped around the pole? Where do you think they got the idea? Right? It's a symbol of healing. It's given by the, from the Bible. 
And what the word of God tells us is that, listen, there's a provision for life. And it's the same thing that we see here in this passage. If you've been bitten by the fiery serpent, you've been bitten by the fiery serpent, then there's a provision for life, but you have to look up. You have to look up in order to have that provision, in order to receive that healing. You see, it's when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus says, listen, unless the Son of Man be lifted up, kind of like that serpent, Nicodemus, you were a religious leader, you would understand this. If you knew your scripture, you would understand that when they lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so too they're going to lift up the Son of Man. And when someone looks to me and they receive me, they're going to have life. You see, you have a choice. You have a choice in the matter. We have a picture of God's beauty and God's mercy, and we have a choice, gang. We have a choice in front of us. Now, here's what the enemy does. He'll reduce that choice to saying, okay, well, do you want to go to church? All right, this is your choice. Go to church, don't go to church. Read your Bible, don't read the Bible. It's so much more than that. We've reduced it just like the Pharisees did, just like any priest that would come after them did. We reduced it to religion. We've reduced it to religion when God said, listen, I have joy. Do you want joy? Choose joy. I have joy available for you. Do you want love? Do you think you're going to get it through religious practice? No, you're going to get it through relationship and enjoying my presence. You want peace? You're lacking it? Oh, I've got peace for you. Matter of fact, the kind of peace that I have for you, it's the peace that surpasseth understanding. Some of you in this room have experienced it. You are going through a situation like Matthias was talking about this morning. And okay, I'm encouraging myself in the Lord. And somehow you gain a peace about it. It doesn't mean that you're hurting. It doesn't mean that you're not struggling. But there's a peace that surpasseth understanding. And so there's this choice between life and death. And we first make it the moment that we come to the cross and we say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. But then we're choosing it every moment after that when we have God's word in front of us. And we know to do this, but we do that. He's been crucified. And we say, well, well, but the struggle's in front of me, Pastor. I can't, I can't overcome them. And he says, yes, finally, you get it. You're right. The struggle's in front of you. You can't do anything about. But when you know how much I love you and when you let me fill you with the Spirit and you get out of the way and you submit to God and resist the enemy, then I fill you. Then I'll minister to your needs. See, God made a choice. Some of you were rejected in the high school cafeteria. I always use that one because I was. It's like whenever I would look for a place to sit in the cafeteria, the seat's taken. All right, whenever I would look for a place to sit, I would always get that. But if you were passed over for the promotion at work, God chose you. If you were rejected by somebody that you loved and cared about, God chose you. If you were rejected, fill in the blank to whatever it was that you thought would satisfy you and you experienced rejection, listen, gang, God chose you in the name of love he was crucified and you have a choice let's go back to John and we'll finish up our passage today And we'll go over to verse 19. 
Verse 19 reads like this. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And at this moment you can see that Pilate with the Jews had had it up to here. He said, I wrote what I wrote and deal with it. There are two things you can do about it, nothing and like it. All right, there's nothing you can do about this. All right, there's a sign up there. That sign on the cross says, you know what, he's the, the king of the Jews. Now, why this is significant is because when the criminal was going through the street, they would have a label of whatever it is that they were guilty of, if they were a murderer, if they were a robber, and so they would be labeled. They would be labeled. And now in the name of love, this brings us to our last point. He wore a label. He wore a label. They called him the king of the Jews. Because Pilate looked at him and he said, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. So what I'm putting there stays. And if you don't like it too bad because you brought him here, you put him here, and he's going there with this label. Oh, we have all sorts of labels that we use for people, do we not? Have you been labeled? Feel like you've been labeled? I'm labeling one that I'm looking at right now. I'm labeling him. He's a DC fan over Marvel. All right, he's wearing Batman shirt. <laughs> it's like, well, you're labeling someone. There's labels that we all wear. There's a label that you wear. There's a way that the world has looked at you, and because of the way you dress, because of the way you talk, because of the way you look, because of your skin color, you've been labeled. When Jesus came, he did away with all that. You see, the full point, number three, says this. In the name of love, he wore a label, and you'll leave a legacy. He wore a label, and you'll leave a legacy. You're going to be remembered for something. As if they were putting a title above you. And I would ask you, how do you want to be remembered? It's interesting sometimes when you look at tombstones. They always have something interesting to remember someone by. And I remember listening to Dr. Jeremiah years ago. He gave this example that I thought was pretty interesting. It was from an Indiana cemetery. It said, I am told that an Indiana cemetery has this tombstone more than 100 years old, which bears the following epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. An unknown passerby read these words, looked around one day. Underneath he scratched this reply, to follow you, sir, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and I would ask you, Friends, what are we going to be remembered for? I mean, we're living in a day and age where people's legacies are being torn down and tarnished left and right. Oh, you've got an Academy Award on your shelf? Good for you. You won the Heisman Trophy? Good for you. You've got more degrees on your wall than you have pictures? Good for you.
we're all going to stand before God, and at the end of the day, there's only going to be one thing that is going to be important to be remembered by, and that is what we did with his son. I don't know about you, but at the end of the day, I want to be remembered for loving my family like Jesus. Loving my friends like Jesus. Loving my church like Jesus. Loving the word. What do you want to be remembered for? As I told you before, and I use this a lot, but it's, hey, preach from what you know. I work at hospice. I never saw anybody that said, you know what, I gave too much of my life to him. Never saw that. Never heard it. Will never happen. So, in the name of love, he carried a cross and bids us to take up ours. In the name of love, he was crucified. And I have a choice. And in the name of love, he wore a label. And you'll leave a legacy. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, survives the American landing at Omaha Beach in World War II. Captain Miller is then given a new mission to find and extract Private James Ryan, the youngest of four brothers. The other three were killed in action. As Captain Miller's squad moves inland to search for Private Ryan, they enter a decimated French village. They encounter a German sniper. The men engage in a brief skirmish with a German squad on a half-track where they find Private James Ryan. Ryan refuses to leave his fellow soldiers. Telling Captain Miller, tell my mom I'm with the only brothers I have left. They defend the bridge from overwhelming odds as reinforcements arrive. But it is too late for Captain Miller and his squad. All but two are dead. At the end of the movie, you have James Ryan is now an old man standing in a Normandy cemetery with his family. He reflects on the sacrifice that was paid for him. Six lives were sacrificed to save him. And falling to his knees at the cemetery cross of Captain Miller, crying, Ryan says to his wife, Tell me. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And when I think about that price that was paid for us, see, I don't know about you, but at the end of my life, what I'm hoping and praying is that when I stand before my Lord, I hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, I want to be the guy that remembers what was done in the name of love. I want to be the guy that remembers the price that was paid. I want to be the guy that leads a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want to be remembered as a guy that took this message seriously and took it, the fact that my life was saved because of it, and did something with it. He took those nails for us. And so here you are today. Maybe you're at a crossroads in your life. And you hear this message and you come to the cross today. This is the representation of it. But you come here and you see that. And my hope and my prayer is that it takes on a new meaning. 
We're often told that the gospel is an equal opportunity offender. And that's true. The gospel in its essence is an offensive message. But the gospel is an open invitation also. It's non-discriminatory. If you're rich or you're poor, if you're black or you're white, you need this cross. Because this is life. That's the choice in front of you today. So if you walked into this room today, if we were to ask you, do you know that if today was your last day on earth, if today was your last day on earth, do you know that you would spend eternity with Christ? Do you know that you're going to heaven? Do you know that you have life? And you said, I don't know. Man, that's so not good enough for God. He desires that we walk around as children that know that we're loved, that know that we're going home. The two men on the cross, the difference between them and us is that they knew exactly when they were dying. They knew when they were dying, and sometimes we forget that we are, that we were created for something so much more than this. And so if you're here today and you hear this message and you say, you know what, this God that did this for me, that went all the way to the cross for me, that gave his life for me, I want to give my life to him. I want to know that if this was the end, that I'm going to stand before God in a place where there's no more crying, there's no more suffering, there's no more crosses. There's only his scars to remind us of his love. If that's you and you need to come up here today, then here's what this looks like. We give what they call an altar call at Calvary Chapel. And during this altar call, well, the guys sing. And if you want to receive the gift of eternal life, then all you have to do is come right up this aisle, and we pray with you.